The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I'm your host, Jessica Pirro, and I appreciate you tuning in each week to learn more about uh, the work that's done through crisis centers throughout our country and the work that we do to help save lives every day. And today's discussion is really going to highlight the role of responding to somebody that is thinking of suicide and what role you could be playing uh, to help in intervening uh, if somebody has thoughts of suicide. So um, last month in April, we had highlighted that April was Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. So this month, we are going to be talking about different types of issues around mental health, um, and today is one of those topics. Today's show um, is titled Suicide Rates on the Rise, How to Restore Hope and Encourage Help. So this past week, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, released a report on the increasing number of suicides, a surge that has not been seen in 30 years. So we want to talk today on how do we address this epidemic and what's our part to move the needle in reducing suicides. So our first step we're going to be talking a lot about is reducing stigma around suicide and mental health. We also will be breaking down the report and discussing the groups at highest risk and why. We'll review risk factors, walk you through how to assess for suicidal concerns, and provide a plan on what steps to take if intervention is needed. Um, and we also want you to learn today what role you can play in helping to reduce stigma and encouraging strength in seeking help. If you have any questions during the show, you can always email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. So I'm welcoming back today Olivia Retalic, who is actually one of my guests on my first debut show. So I, I appreciate you coming back, Olivia. In that first show, we talked about suicide. So we're, we're bringing this topic back, considering the conversation that's going on as a result of this report. So just to remind you a little bit about uh, Olivia Retalic, uh, she's done uh, numerous types of, of work in the counseling field, including domestic violence, substance abuse, and crisis response. And she's the coordinator of our Suicide Prevention Coalition of Erie County, here in in Buffalo, New York. She's a trainer in suicide prevention, evidence-based models such as QPR, which is question, persuade, and refer, which we're going to talk a little bit about later in the show, safe talk, 
Assist, and the Lifelines Trilogy for Schools. And specifically around the Lifelines Trilogy, um, in our next couple of segments, we also will be having a guest, um, Maureen Underwood, who's going to be joining us, who's actually the the um, author of the, the Lifelines Trilogy. And she's going to be speaking specifically um, on how we talk to our kids about suicide. So if, um, as we always do with every show, we want to provide you with a resource. So if you're feeling suicidal or as we're talking today, if you're starting to see somebody that you love with these signs and these symptoms and you don't know what to do, we ask you to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and that is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. And also, there's a Lifeline crisis chat, so you can log on to crisis chat org if you feel more comfortable chatting with a counselor today. So um, I want to just give you a little bit of a sense of the CDC report and what was being reported um, that we're seeing this surge of suicide increasing over the last 30 years. So according to the report, We've seen the greatest increase. Um, what we see, uh, one of the greatest increases was actually among girls ages 10 to 14. Um, we also saw that for women, um, one of the frequent methods of suicide was poisoning. We also saw that the suicide rates increased um, throughout from 1999 through 2014 for both men and women ages 10 to 74. Um, and the greatest increase we've seen in men ages 45 to 64. So we're, we're seeing kind of an overall increase in all of the age groups, although a decrease in our, our more older elderly population. Um, but when you talk about men, women, um, and young girls, we're seeing a, a consistent increase um, amongst all of those uh, age groups. And while male, males are four times more likely than females to die by suicide, females attempt suicide three times as often as males. So these are just kind of to give you a little snapshot of that overall report. And I know for us locally here in Buffalo, New York, um, when that report came out, it definitely brought attention. Uh, we had a, almost a little media circuit that Olivia and I did with some of our local TV stations and radio stations to kind of give our feedback on this report, but also to remind people how to seek help and how to get that support during those difficult times. So, um, Olivia, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you with Thank me you. again. Um, yeah. So the first thing, I guess, just to kind of get your initial reaction to the report, what was your thoughts to that? Sure. Well, thank you definitely for having me back on. Um, this is definitely a topic that is it's hard to talk about concerning, and the numbers are staggering. Um, we talked earlier this week with some of our other uh, media requests that the idea around this report isn't exactly new to us. It's still alarming to us, and it's concerning right. to us. But in the field, we know that our statistics are very high, and, and we oftentimes will say that the numbers are, are more conservative than what we even know exist. We know that every year, over 42,000 individuals die by suicide, and locally, I always give the, the statistic that if you've ever been out to um, one of the Bison's baseball games, the you know one of our, our minor league baseball stadiums, they house around 21,000 individuals. So doubling that number the next time you're out at one of those minor league stadiums is the number of people dying every year in our country by suicide. And we know that that number is, is what we tend to believe is conservative because in order to identify a death by suicide, it has to be very clear that, um, that, that suicide was the intent. Right. And so unfortunately, 
we believe that our numbers are actually much higher than this. So what this article did was really shed light on the public health crisis that we know already is existing. Absolutely. And, and I think the piece that you mentioned about the, the, the accuracy of reporting, I think that might be playing out a little bit. But also, like you said, it, there's very specific criteria for identifying suicides. And sometimes it can be difficult for a medical examiner or coroner mm-hmm. to make that determination unless they have the, the information to show that potentially this could have been a suicide. So as you're saying, there's probably a lot more that go unreported mm-hmm. because we're not, we don't have those criteria or factors when they're making that decision on that, that particular death. So why don't we jump right in and talk about risk factors for suicide? Because I think one of the things that is critical is for all of us as a community, as family members, to always have our eyes and ears open um, and listening to what people are saying, how they're acting. Um, So let's talk with our listeners a little bit about what are risk factors that people should be looking for. Sure. So we're going to talk actually about risk factors and warning signs as we kind of move through today's show. And it's really important to understand when you hear the term risk factor, what that means. And and a number of us could at any given time have any kind of risk factor. And so we actually use the analogy of heart disease, you know, that if you go to your doctor's office and they say, um, you know, you have gained some weight and your cholesterol is bad and you have a family history of heart disease that you could be at risk for a heart attack. But if tomorrow I go to my doctor's office and I can't breathe and I'm perspiring and I'm having pain in my chest, then I'm clearly at, at, you know, showing warning signs that I'm having a heart attack in that moment. And so, um, you know, the plans for us kind of change depending if we're talking about risk factor or warning signs. So what are some of the risk factors that somebody could be thinking about um, or be at risk for suicide? Um, And those risk factors can include having a history of any kind of diagnosis of mental illness, um, but most oftentimes not not being treated. So we want to identify that as a a protective factor is having good, proper um, mental health care. So a risk factor is untreated um, mental illness or a history of mental illness that's being undertreated. Um, Talking about uh, feelings of hopelessness, um, any kind of uh, sleep disturbances that have been going on or a uh, diagnosis of any major medical illness or um, chronic pain, those could all be risk factors as well for, for suicide. When you say hopeless, what, what does that mean? Can you give some descriptions of what somebody might feel or say when they're feeling hopeless? Right. And so hopeless could be a risk factor, but it could also be a warning sign. So when somebody is talking about just that they don't have any belief that things are going to get better and they'll say things like, I just can't deal with this anymore. There aren't any answers or I'm too tired to, to really deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. That, that feeling that nothing out there is going to make their situation better. No form of treatment can help them. No friends care anymore more. Their family can't help them. So when you're hearing somebody say those kinds of statements of nobody can help, I'm I'm all alone, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing is going to get better. That's when we're really concerned about feelings of hopelessness. I know too, the, the feeling of being a burden on somebody, Mm -hmm. either your friends, your family, you mentioned having medical issues. Like if somebody starts to get depressed because of a chronic medical condition, or maybe they're feeling like they're becoming a burden on their family, it can put them in a a state of depression, Mm -hmm. which could also be a risk for thinking of suicide. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that burden feeling, what that means a little bit? Sure. You know, most oftentimes as individuals, we want to believe that we're able to take care of ourselves. And so we tend to find those things in our life that we're going to be able to do to help support if we have any kind of medical illness or if we have any kind of chronic mental health um, diagnosis. But at, at 
certain points in our lives, we can start to feel like the things that we're dealing with are actually a burden to somebody else that they're, you know, that we're putting undue hardship on, on their shoulders at that point. So especially if you're talking about somebody who's maybe been dealing with depression for a long time or anxiety for a long time, they can start to feel like that burden isn't just theirs to carry anymore, that they're really putting it on someone else's shoulders to have to help them get out of bed, to have to help them find hope. And so that burden really can make them feel like suicide is an answer. Absolutely. And um, you had mentioned um, like medical conditions or chronic mm-hmm. issues. Um, and we've been talking a lot locally and it's actually state and nationally about the role of the medical field in helping to identify suicide and being helping to be a prevention role um, for suicide. Um, can you talk a little bit about why it's important that like primary care offices um, really start to kind of identify and assess for suicide? Absolutely. So when we talk about all these things that we just mentioned, those risk factors and feelings of hopelessness and feeling like a burden, we we know that it can start to put an individual into a place where they can't really even identify identify the struggles that they're going through. And so the reason why our, our um, sort of target with primary care is really important is because we also know that individuals will oftentimes see a doctor before they'll ever get connected to mental health services. However, it's so important that the screenings at our doctor's offices can help somebody to put into words what maybe they're feeling, and they can't always verbalize that. And so working with our doctor's offices to recognize that, you know, screenings, depression screenings, having what we call lethality assessments as part of their regular routine is so helpful and so crucial because if an individual is sitting in a doctor's office and they read things like, you know, have you had thoughts of wanting to die? in the last 30 days or are you struggling getting out of bed because of how you're feeling then a person can say oh that is you know they're able to put words to what's going on with them physically mm-hmm. absolutely and I think um, one of the things we wanted to touch on too is just there is such an interrelation between you know your behavioral health and your physical mm-hmm. health and also um, understanding the impact of either medical conditions or chronic medical conditions but also trauma that might occur so if somebody experiences a trauma, either um, they could be uh, sexually assaulted or maybe even a really bad car accident that's very traumatic but also then causes physical injuries, that impacts the person's behavioral health. And when we're treating just the medical response after a traumatic incident, we really do have to think about the long-term effects of that trauma on their behavioral care and their behavioral health and also assessing for is it causing more depression, is it causing concerns for suicide. And I know... Um, Um, You know, we've talked a little bit, too, about the impact of concussions um, or even just a a traumatic brain injury that might result from an accident that can put people at a higher risk for, for thoughts of suicide. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah. So we were actually very fortunate here in uh, Buffalo to work with um, someone who's relatively famous in our area, Joe DeLamalier. And he actually did some PSAs for us around um, uh, around a anti-stigma campaign called Tough Enough to Talk. And what he shared with us was that, you know, he has struggled with, you know, repeated concussions, um, hits to the head over his time with the Buffalo Bills and working, you know, um, in, in the sports field. And so, you know, he's been a, a big proponent 
about um, safety around uh, post-concussion syndrome because it can really change your behaviors and it can change how you, you know, your emotions and how you're seeing things, your perceptions, and it certainly can be a risk factor, um, you know, around suicide. Absolutely. And, you know, just one thing I'd like to mention in regards to trauma, there is a a study called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood um, Experience Study. And for physicians who might be listening and kind of going back to the piece we talked about with the role of the medical profession, um, you know, it's a really interesting study that talks about uh, trauma in childhood and how that plays out into the adulthood, Mm -hmm. specifically around physical health, and also puts them at higher risks for suicide. So, um, you know, it's all interrelated. And I think the more we can become educated about um, that in all the different disciplines that interface with people, if Mm -hmm. it's if it's healthcare, um, if it's the school systems, whatever it may be, the more we can become educated about how to respond to people, we might be able to intervene more quickly um, and hopefully prevent these suicides from continuing. Um, So why don't we talk a little bit about um, what are protective factors? Now, we use that word and it may not make sense to our (laughs) listeners, but what are protective factors that um, people can work on or that they have that might help them from actually completing a suicide? Right. You know, you mentioned something there about education. Education is our biggest ally that if we can just help to understand that we're not alone in these situations and and educate the community that really can make us um, jump, you know, much further ahead in terms of prevention. So what are some protective factors? You know, one is is breaking the stigma, being able to say, I am thinking about suicide or I am feeling really down and being able to talk about our emotions openly and honestly and know that you're not alone. So breaking stigma in our communities and our schools. Um, also enhancing our community, um, you know, building up our support system around us and making sure that we feel a part and connected of what's going on around us and that our community really is embracing that idea of supporting each other, you know, being able to talk openly and honestly and just know that we can check in with one another and see how we're doing. Um, having effective clinical care. So we know that almost 90% of all suicides um, are around somebody who is not uh, receiving effective clinical care for depression. So making sure that we're getting connected with our doctors and our counselors, and if we don't know who to turn to, that we're reaching out to find out who in our community can support us. Absolutely. And and like you said earlier with our campaign that we did with Tough Enough to Talk, it's really about people, um, the courage to, to, to make that step, but also f- the courage for those around them to just to be very direct and ask them, are you thinking of suicide as well? Because that helps to reduce that stigma. It helps to engage people into conversations that might really change the path of their life that day. And we really just want to encourage people if they, they are seeing somebody that's having a hard time or, or just a change in behavior, mm-hmm. like some of the things we talked about earlier, that you reach out and you ask for, you know, ask somebody how they're doing. Um, and that is really critical when we're talking about reducing stigma. So I just want to remind everyone that that's listening, that if you yourself are having thoughts of suicide or based on the conversation today, you identify this is somebody in your your life that might be um, thinking of suicide, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And also the Lifeline has a a chat available um, that if you're feeling more comfortable to chat versus talking over the phone, and you can... Um, reach out to them through www.crisischat.org. So we have a a lot that we're going to dive into in these next two segments. We have Maureen Underwood, who's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope.
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me today. We are talking about suicide, um, and specifically in response to a recent report that was put out by the CDC about the increased rates of suicide that we're seeing across our country. We have Olivia Retallick, who's been with us so far in the show, and now joining me, I have uh, Maureen Underwood. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Maureen. Excuse me. Uh, Maureen is an LCSW and is the lead author of the Lifelines Trilogy, Prevention, Intervention, and Postvention. With over 35 years in the field of youth suicide, she is a master trainer of both clinical and school-based models of prevention. She's an international speaker who is widely published on this and other topics and is recognized as a national leader in school-based youth suicide efforts. Maureen has also provided uh, numerous clinical trainings and suicide assessment for emergency room mental health screeners in New Jersey for t- over the last 10 years, has co-authored a book chapter on the assessment of risk, suicide risk in outpatient settings, and she's also authored the National Association of Social Works Policy Statement on Adolescent Suicide um, and was a charter member of the state's Governor Council on Youth Suicide Prevention. So Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jessica. It's very nice to be here. 
So um, I think one of the first things I just want to start with, Maureen, is when you saw this report that came out through the CDC, I just wanted to get your reactions to it and then also um, how your thoughts are with the increase among young girls. Well, you know, I I really did focus on that youth portion of it because that's the part that I understand the most. And unfortunately, it didn't come as a really big surprise. One of the things that we noted for oh, I guess about the 10 years before this, was that the attempt rate had been increasing for 10 to 14-year-old girls. So the fact that kids had moved from attempts into completions, you know, that's sort of where it goes. Um, so that wasn't really a surprise. I think one of the things, and I, and I you know, as you and uh, Olivia were talking about a little while ago, I think that's so important for us to remember is that suicide happens in a context. And I think we often think just about the mental health factors that may put someone at risk. And I think when we're looking at kids in particular, but especially this group of girls, it's really important to look at them in the context of how they're growing up today. And the one thing that I think is is really, well, two things actually, that I think are particularly significant for these girls is, first of all, um, you know, what we know is that girls are developing sexually much earlier. There was a study that was done, and it reported that prior to 2005, only 5% of girls went through early puberty um, before age 8 is what that means. Since 2005, 27% of 8-year-old girls and 15% of 7-year-old girls went through early puberty. And there is no similar study for boys. And what we know about that is that when kids mature earlier, that it becomes... Um, uh, the, you know, their sexual drive starts earlier. They have a feeling about, you know, kind of the reproduction. Um, we also know that there's a lot of mental illnesses that start to incubate at puberty. The depression rate, for example, for boys and girls prior to puberty is the same. Unfortunately, once girls go through puberty, their rate for depression jumps up 100% from that of boys, and it stays there the rest of the life cycle. So I think that, you know, based on some of the things you were just saying in terms of risk factors, you can see that that's a very, very significant one for kids in this age group. And, you know, I think the other one is the the impact of um, social media. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some signs and symptoms um, specific for kids and teens, you know, for parents or, or loved ones around them? Um, what, are, what should they be looking for? I mean, this piece about, you know, obviously their health and, and starting puberty um, would be something that to keep an eye on and pay attention to. I think that's such a critical um, education. I know for myself, that was really interesting to hear. But what are some other things for parents that they could keep their eyes on and, and ears open um, to help their children? Well, you know, to kind of continue on on you know, what I said a couple of seconds ago, I think especially for younger kids, it's really important for parents to have some sense of what their online presence is. You know, I know that kids feel, you know, like they're entitled to a lot of privacy. Um, you know, as a parent and as a grandparent, I think that there certainly are reasonable limits to that privacy. And I think especially for younger kids, 
you have to pay attention to what's going on with social media. You know, I think that one of the, the things that we've realized is that for kids, their social media and the number of people they're connected with, you know, people that like them, that's their social currency. And that's how they measure their worth. And it, other kids know that. It's not something that's a secret. And other kids keep score. The other part of it is that sometimes the kids who are the most fragile or the most vulnerable are the ones who make the worst choices on social media. They may be the kids who don't pay attention to some of the risks in terms of perhaps sexting, um, other choices in terms of being manipulated by some of the dangerous people, you know, who are on there seeking attention. I mean, I had a, a therapy practice in New Jersey for quite some time, and I would see a lot of kids. And I thought it was pretty striking that in the percentage of kids I had in my practice, which maybe at any time ranged from about 30 or 40, there were two girls who had been engaged in online conversations with men who turned out to be sexual predators, and the FBI got involved. Now, this is a small population in a little town in New Jersey, and I think parents have to really recognize this stuff is real. It happens, and if you're not paying attention, your kids have no direction and no support. So I think that's a critically important thing to pay attention to. The other thing, and this is something that Olivia said, um, you know, adolescence is a hard time. I mean, mm-hmm. as we know, uh, lots of kids look crazy one day and they look fine the next. So I think for all of us, and for parents in particular, it's really kind of tracking what we see as changes in our kids' behavior, especially changes that last for a couple of weeks or so. You know, this is not the daily up and down or the hourly up and down. Sometimes the <laughs> right, minute right. up and down that, that kids go through. But it's really looking at a couple of weeks and and kind of just recognizing your kid doesn't just seem him or herself. Your parent radar is going off, and most of the time, you know, even I know as a parent, you know, you've got a million other things on your plate, and you feel like, oh, not a big deal. And maybe it isn't, um, but you don't know unless you ask. So I think it's important for parents to know it's okay to say to a kid, hey, you're not yourself lately. You know, sit down and tell them, what's going on? Tell me what's happening for you. Because I think that's how you're going to get some of the valuable information, and that's going to lead you to understand whether it's suicide risk or something else. Um, You want to know what's happening in the lives of your children. And I think, you know, you just mentioned the piece about, you know, talking with, with our children. And, you know, sometimes it's, I think, just parents and, and kids, sometimes the challenge of talking is just uncomfortable, especially um, with some of these topics. So can you give our listeners maybe just some questions that they could use to at least start that conversation? Because I think just having a couple tools to maybe start the conversation might help make it easier for parents to, to engage in, in these really important conversations with their kids. Oh, I think that's a great question. And what I would say is I think that the conversation, there's a conversation with yourself before the conversation with your child. And I think you have to begin by looking at your own feelings about suicide. Um, I I think you have to ask yourself, what do you think and feel about it? And if you're like most parents, 
it's a pretty scary thought, particularly when it comes to your own child. So one of the things I want to suggest, and I know um, I heard Olivia talking about um, sort of an analogy with heart disease. I'd like to suggest an analogy uh, with cancer um, for suicide. And, and it comes from, you know, thinking about the way cancer was talked about several decades ago when you didn't even say the word. Um, it was C. You used the word C. Um, or right. it, she's got it, and because it was equated with death. And I think that if we could change our understanding of suicide and not make it be about this as a person who wants to die, but to think about it instead as an alternative to a problem that seems unsolvable by any other way, then I think it makes it a little less anxious-making for us to talk about it. Um, so rather than, you know, parents asking the question, well, do you want to kill yourself or why do you want to die? The question you ask is, what's going on in your life right now that makes you feel so miserable um, you feel like you'd rather be dead? And right. that gives you an opportunity to talk about something that's not so scary for both you and your child. So that's, that's the first step in the process. And then the second step is listening to the answer. And that's probably the hardest thing, especially as a parent, to hear your child say, I hate my life. Um, I don't want to be here anymore. I, I hate myself. And our normal reaction is we want to say, oh, come on. You know, you've got so much to live for. Or, you know, you're, you snap out of it. Um, you, you know, you can't let something like this get you down. Instead of saying what I think are the three simplest words, and they're conversation starters for any difficult topic for parents, and they're simply, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Um, that opens the door to conversation, and as parents, we, know, we should know how to have conversations with our kids. Um, unfortunately, they often turn into inquisitions, and that's why our kids stop listening. But if you can think about this as a conversation where you're trying to get information and get as much information as you can, it makes it a little bit easier, and I think it takes some of that, that fear away from having, having that talk with your child. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I appreciate you sharing those thoughts because I think that can be really helpful for for our parents who are listening in. Kind of just in that same context, though, what are some other um, supports or recommendations you could give to parents um, to talk with their child if they have lost a friend to suicide? Well, you know, it starts at the same place, really, is, and again, this is what's hard for a lot of us, is rather than have a conversation that begins by asking your child, what do you think or how do you feel, to have the parents start by saying, I, you know, I know your friend just died and I have to tell you, I'm totally overwhelmed by it. I can't even believe it happened. I am so sad and so confused. And then to add the part, I wonder how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. And then as parents, you know, if the time isn't right, you're probably going to get an answer like, I don't, I don't know, I don't have any feelings. And to let kids have that space, but then to revisit the conversation at another time. Because, you know, as parents, you, you always learn there, there are those moments, and sometimes it's just a moment, when you can have a conversation about a difficult topic and then the window closes. 
So it's right, you know, right. kind of paying attention to see when is it open and when can you say, talk to me a little bit about what this is like. Boy, it's pretty scary for me. I wouldn't be surprised if it was pretty scary for you too. So if you can begin to be vulnerable, it's much easier for your child to follow in your steps and be vulnerable as well. So it's that opening the door, which is really, really critical. Okay. And what about some maybe suggestions for schools and school personnel when a suicide occurs? Um, what are some best practices uh, when responding to those situations? I mean, that's kind of, we talk a lot about that through the Lifelines Trilogy training, um, but what are some immediate recommendations you could make for school personnel? I, well, I think the best one, and it kind of is the theme of what we've just, you've just asked me in the last few questions, is you know, if you talk, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah, you know, sometimes we think if we avoid discussion about things, kids are not going to think about them, they're going to forget about them, and that's not true. So I think it's about how to talk about them. And I think, again, the message is it's conversational, and it's not, um, it's not scaring a child. It's basically saying, wow, this is how I feel. How do you feel? In a school, it's recognizing that some kids may have no feelings at all. So that's why we really recommend that schools don't do school-wide announcements, hold assemblies, um, you know, do things, close schools um, because they feel everyone is sad. Because there's going to be kids who didn't even know the person who died and are not going to feel anything. And sometimes they can feel guilty, but they're having no reaction at all. And it's mm-hmm. about that real delicate balance between doing enough um, and not doing anything. And so you have to assess the situation and recognize there are some deaths that stop everybody in their tracks and others that, you know, they kind of go and there's, there's not much change in a school. But it's, it's acknowledging what the reaction is. And, again, to kind of piggyback on something that you all said earlier, it's recognizing that sometimes schools can't do it alone. They need community resources to help them. If it's really a big, big event and the teachers are pretty overwhelmed, the rest of the staff are overwhelmed, and the kids are overwhelmed, having those outside resources come in to support you is a really important part of this response strategy. Absolutely. And, you know, you, uh, as the author of the, the Lifelines trilogy, it really breaks down intervent, uh, prevention, intervention, and postvention. So it gives schools really the tools of talking about prevention of suicide, how to actually respond and intervene if there's concerns of somebody with, with suicidal thoughts. But that postvention piece is what, and what you've been talking about a little bit is, is how to respond to a death. And I think it, it really translates to not just suicide, but maybe maybe unexpected deaths of students that the school can use Mm -hmm. these tools. And and like you said, bringing in community resources really helps to to kind of strike a balance of that support. Um, And, you know, I just wanted to ask Olivia, you know, we doing the the Lifelines trilogy here in the schools throughout our our county. um, What are some initial thoughts to, to from the school's personnel after they receive that training? Right. You know, um, we've been really successful here in Erie County. We started out about three years ago trying to implement the Lifelines program, and Maureen actually came in and, and was a part of that initial training. And um, we're so fortunate to have her as one of our experts and resources to turn to. So that's one of the things we tell our schools right up front is that not only do you have local supports, but we also have um, access to our national experts as well. And um, and we're really trying to build the capacity now within Erie County that we'd like to see all of our schools implementing it. It's one of the only evidence 
based programs that's out there. And um, it really is available for any kind of trauma that may occur in the building, not only while it's for suicide specific prevention, it can be used for any kind of trauma in the building. Great. Well, we're um, just heading into break now and we'll continue our discussion with Olivia and Maureen um, around responding to suicide. But just a reminder, if you're having thoughts of suicide or need to reach out for someone you love, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to The Journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, just a reminder, if you do have any questions for us today, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So I had had with me over the last couple of segments Olivia Retallick and Maureen Underwood, who've been discussing the response to the recent CDC report um, that's talking about the rates of suicide increasing in our communities. So in our last segment, we were talking with Maureen um, and Olivia about uh, parents' response for their children. Um, and how they can uh, be listening and how to talk with kids. But we also talked about the roles of schools in responding to suicide. So, um, Maureen, can we talk a little bit about um, really how to develop a comprehensive and competent community in responding to suicide? Well, you know, I think that your choice of those words, you know, is really right on, Jessica, because I think that, again, as I said earlier, we have to recognize 
that suicide is not just a mental health problem. Um, it's an issue that affects all of us in all segments of our life. And I think the first piece is really acknowledging that just addressing the mental health needs of either children or adults is not going to be enough. Um, that everybody has to feel that they have some responsibility to be competent um, and compassionate. And basically all that means is in a given community, everybody cares about each other's welfare and they know where and how to get help if a community member is in need. And I think if that, you know, were a philosophy that we saw not just in schools, um, but in religious organizations, in businesses, in youth groups, and in communities per se, that would go a long way to the identification of people who might be at risk, who may or may not share that with us, and then to get them the services that they need. Absolutely. So, Maureen, can you share a little bit further? I mean, we talked about the Lifelines curriculum, but maybe just highlight some pieces of that curriculum and why it's important for our schools to consider this type of training. Well, you know, first of all, it is comprehensive, and it, and it does recognize that everyone in the school community has a responsibility to be engaged in suicide prevention. So it includes components for administrators, faculty and staff, for students, and for parents. And they're very specifically outlined. There's, you know, this is um, a, a very structured program that can be tailored to the needs of an individual school, but it provides a lot of best practice and evidence-based guidelines for you to provide programs um, in prevention, which includes a student curriculum, a parent, a parent presentation, a faculty and staff presentation, and some guidelines for administrators for their protocols. Intervention um, actually looks at the kids who may come to the school resources to how do you do an assessment in the school to get information that really can be helpful if a child needs to be referred out for services or even if the child is going to stay in the school, what, what the school can do to become a safety net for that child if there's really risk for any kind of vulnerable behavior. And then finally, as you just mentioned, um, post-vention, recognizing that, unfortunately, sometimes despite all of our best efforts, that, you know, children die by suicide. And we have to be prepared to manage and contain the response of others and to facilitate that process of grieving. So that's kind of what Lifeline does. It provides guidelines for all of that. Now, I know you mentioned in the last segment about things to not do um, after a suicide occurs in the school and just to really be conscious of all the different levels of responses that the students might have. And I know some of the concerns are for contagion and kind of how that might play out after a suicide occurs. Could you talk a little bit about that and kind of dive in a little deeper with that? Because I think that's an important piece to, for people to understand. Well, you know, I think we've, we've become more and more concerned about contagion or copycat suicides, and particularly um, we've become concerned about it because of social media, because we don't know the connections necessarily kids have with each other. So that's why when there's a death in your school community of any child under any circumstance or an adult who really is seen by kids as a role model, it's really, really important to identify all of the people who may be affected by that death, um, close friends, people who didn't like the person, um, teammates, 
kids who live in the same neighborhood, kids who are in the same grade, kids who are vulnerable for other reasons, and to reach out to every single one of these kids to say, hey, you know, we know we have this tragic event in our school, and we just want to check with you to see, you know, how you're doing about it. Um, and to note that, so you've got a list of vulnerable kids that you can begin to pay attention to, and it, you know, kind of takes you from just having a reaction um, to having sort of a strategic plan that reaches out to, to kids and adults as well that you might think might potentially be at risk because of this death. That's a really, really critical piece. And um, you know, for kids who are out of school, that 18 to 24 year old bunch, um, you know, one of the things we recommend is that sometimes crisis workers go to neighborhoods. Kids live in housing projects or developments that, you know, every neighbor gets their door knocked on. And this is by one of those community resource people and asked, you know, how are you doing? You know, you lost a neighbor. We just want to check on you and give them resources like that National Suicide Lifeline number that, you know, you've been emphasizing, as well as local resources where they can go if they just need to talk to somebody. Absolutely. And I think it's just that, that, you know, really checking in with somebody and and those around um, the individual that has, you know, has died by suicide to just kind of make sure that we are um, showing that support. And I think schools play such a critical role, um, not only high schools, but, you know, I think, as you mentioned, the young adult uh, population and the roles that colleges um, also should be playing um, in responding to suicide and, and having proper policies so that when the when this does happen because it's a crisis for for everybody that's involved that those policies are there to pull out and and be able to walk them through that and I know that the postvention part of the the trilogy does help to kind of assist schools um, with that kind of crisis planning so is there any tips around that type of response for schools that you'd like to highlight um, and specifically about implementing policies well you know I think that one of the key parts of policy is is that it's a reflection of administrative support. And, you know, you can have any program in a school that's terrific and wonderful, but if you don't have administrative support, it's never going to last. So I think that, you know, by dedicating some time and effort and energy to creating policies and protocols that address all of these kinds of issues that may come up when you're dealing with a kid who might be suicidal, when you're dealing with a kid who may make an attempt at school or off campus, or unfortunately a student or a faculty member or other staff who dies by suicide or other traumatic circumstance. Um, you know, what you do is you structure how you're going to respond so you're really proactive instead of reactive. Um, and you, you follow the key principles of providing support to your school through, through giving structure and control, because that's what policies and protocols do, and it just prepares you. Schools have policies and protocols for everything. I mean, we, you know, I've been in many schools where I've been involved in some of the intruder drills that they've had, um, the lockdowns, and, you know, unfortunately they happen, but I'll tell you, a lot more schools have suicides then have armed intruders come in, and most schools just don't have any kind of idea of what they would do if this were to happen. So it's really that um, preparing yourself, because certainly this is something that you might have to deal with at some point. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and we know that, you know, our schools want to do the best that they can for the students. And oftentimes the questions that we get asked locally is, is this safe and is it really important for us to implement this? You know, what what really should we do? And I think it's so valuable to hear um, from Maureen talk about that policy and, and being, you know, not being reactive, being proactive. You know, like she said, you know, we do drills around all of these other kinds of things, fires, you know, we don't oftentimes, we practice how many times a year, but the reality is that the risk for somebody having suicidal thoughts is greater on any given day than, you know, a fire in our schools. And so it's so important for our administrators to, to offer the support and buy in um, and know that we're doing it from an evidence-based place and that it's it's much safer if you're, you know, walking through a program like this than not walking through anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know we've been talking a little bit about kind of the role of schools response, but the general community as a whole is something I know locally and we're, you know, across the state here in New York, but just I think from a national perspective, the need to get people more comfortable with um, identifying suicidal concerns um, is something that we're, we've been working on and identifying and training what we're referring to as gay pe- gatekeepers, people that are going to be willing to kind of ask those questions. So, Olivia, can we just take a few minutes to talk a little bit about QPR? Um, I think it's a, a pretty uh, a good training for kind of the general person um, around suicide assessment and prevention. Um, can you just wa- briefly walk through kind of what it means and maybe what are some of the steps that somebody takes when they're identifying somebody that they're concerned about? Right, because it's so important to recognize, especially if you're listening today, that there really is hope around suicide. You know, our numbers can seem very grim, but the reality is, is that for any one person who dies by suicide, there are almost 300 individuals that are able to get effective care, move through those suicidal thoughts, and go on to live, you know, a healthy life. And very few that will actually return to having suicidal thoughts. And so learning something like QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer, allows us as a community to recognize if somebody may be in a mental health crisis. Just like we learn first aid and CPR courses, um, we can learn how to ask somebody very directly. You know, once you learn that somebody's struggling and you open that dialogue, and I think Maureen's talked about how, you know, some good ways to do that. One of the things that we like to teach is that using your senses, what are you hearing, seeing, sensing, feeling that somebody you know or that you love may be thinking about suicide? And once you can replay those back to that person and say, look, you haven't been able to get out of bed recently, you've stopped coming to church or you've stopped participating, you know, in playing basketball and you love those things and and you know sometimes when a person says these things or does these things they're thinking about suicide and I really am worried about you I want to know if you are so learning how to ask very directly are you thinking about suicide and then if somebody says well yeah I have been then what do you do so then you want to do the persuading you know letting them know you care that they you know aren't alone in this that you're worried about them and that you're here to help them and not diminishing what it is that they're feeling you know just acknowledging that they're in pain but that they can get help and you know how to help support them through that. And then knowing how to refer out in your community. Who are the people in your community that you can connect them with? The National Lifeline, we've mentioned a number of times, 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255 is the National Lifeline here locally in Erie County. You can dial 834-3131 and be connected with crisis services. And you can call in whether it's for yourself that's in crisis or you can call in and say, look, you know, someone I know is struggling and I'm wondering if you can help me support them through 
through this. So definitely reaching out to take a proper training, a formal training with us. You know, we can do those free. They're an hour. We can come out to any group that you belong to. We can train. Um, and then knowing very specifically that it's a safe program to offer and then just how to reach out and get that help for somebody you know. And I think it's important. I mean, one of my goals of doing this show is to highlight the roles that crisis centers play throughout the country and actually internationally. Um, there's crisis centers in all communities. And I think it's important for if it's businesses or schools um, or just the general community that to know that your crisis center is there to reach out to the hotline counselors are there 24-7 to answer any questions that you have, provide supportive counseling, get you linked in with any resources or referrals that might help you. And I just want to share, um, you know, this is this is a an internet talk radio show, so it's really international. And I want to share an international resource. There's the International Association for Suicide Prevention, which is um, IASP.info. And on that website, if you go to resources and then your crisis centers, you're going to be able to find crisis centers internationally. Um, and as we've been mentioning throughout the show, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is one 800 273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. I also want to highlight uh, a resource um, that's that started more recently um, for transgendered uh, individuals who might be wanting to talk with uh, a, a resource that is real specific to them. And so there's now a trans lifeline, and that number is one 877 Five six five eight eight six zero. Again, one eight seven seven five six five eight eight six zero. And I think it's important to highlight that there are there are these different resources that, um, and we're also being very sensitive to to the needs of various populations in different cultures as well to make sure that we're providing a point of access that's comfortable and trusted and safe for people to reach out to. Um, so uh, we just have a, a few minutes left on the show. I don't know, Maureen, if you have any um, final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners. Well, you know, I just want to kind of reiterate what Olivia has said is that, you know, despite talking about risk, it's really important to know that most people who are struggling with suicide don't kill themselves, and they get help. Help is there in so many places, and I think you've done a great job of reinforcing for folks that it, sometimes it's only a phone call away. Um, so how important it is to reach out would be my last message. Okay. And Olivia, any final comments that you'd like to share today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just that we are here and that we do care and your life matters and those of your friends and loved ones matter and that you don't have to be suffering alone. You know, our Tough Enough to Talk campaign is really trying to emphasize that, that you're just one phone call away, that there are people out here who care and that we can give you help help and hope. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to thank both uh, Olivia and Maureen for, for sharing their insight and their expertise around the issue of suicide today. I think it's, again, the more that we talk about it, the more we help reduce stigma, um, the more that we encourage people to to reach out for help, but also the role that we all play in reaching out to those that we see that are suffering or that we have concerns about. It really does take a full community to make sure that we're addressing this issue. Um, and, and I think if we can all be um, charged today to, to reach out to somebody that we think maybe is having a hard time and checking in with them and give them the hotline number 
number. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. Um, you know, I think that you could really change the path of someone's life today. So thanks again to Maureen and Olivia for, for joining me today. Um, and thank you for listening in. Um, this uh, show, The Journey Stories of Crisis is Hope in Hope, uh, airs every Tuesday at 8, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And again, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So thanks so much for tuning in today and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.